0: Investable Universe is about thematic topics in real assets investing. This is what we mean by the global market of things, real estate, infrastructure, land, energy, and other commodities that have historically been viewed as boring old income investments. But take a look at the shifts underway in these asset classes from industry disruptors to new investors, to emerging markets, to geopolitics, and you'll find these assets are anything but dull. We'll talk about private equity, venture capital, corporate VC, sovereign wealth funds, listed markets, crazy startups, some old guard investment firms, some maverick entrepreneurs, and some paradigm-changing technologies. One thing is certain, no corner of the global market of things will be left untouched by the changes happening right now, and that's what we'll be talking about on this podcast. It's all part of our expanding investable universe, and maybe it'll be part of yours too. I'm joined today by the founder and CEO of a UK-based fintech firm that sits at the intersection of multiple emerging market nodes that could have real implications for the way that real assets are traded and invested in the coming years. Mohammed Rafi Hussein is the founder and CEO of Facet, a fintech startup based in the UK that offers fractional or what we call tokenized investment in the sustainable buildout or refurbishment of traditional global infrastructure assets like bridges and energy storage using a fairly well-known cryptocurrency, in this case, Ethereum, on a blockchain-enabled technology platform. So by combining these approaches to blockchain, to sustainability building, and fractional ownership, his company hopes to bridge what has been widely touted as a $15 trillion infrastructure spending deficit expected between now and the year 2040. Mohamed Rafi Hussein is a former technology advisor to the United Arab Emirates Prime Minister's Office, and I'm very excited to hear his thoughts on the podcast today. Thank you for joining Investable Universe today. Mr. Hussein.
1: Thank you very much, Rebecca, for for that introduction. Thanks for uh, having me uh, on your podcast.
0: So first, let's talk a little bit about fractional ownership of hard assets. Uh, We covered on on the website different asset class disruptors that have brought fractionalization to markets like farmland or like commercial real estate, which are both traditionally quite illiquid and limited to institutional buyers. Why are traditional infrastructure assets ripe for this approach?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. So I think you know when we think about infrastructure, uh, we typically think of you know big projects with big ticket sizes uh, that are invested in by you know large sovereign wealth funds. So everything is kind of happening at an extra large size, uh, if you will, yep. uh, which oftentimes uh, kind of either disincentivizes or even in some cases prevents other investors of different sizes to come in uh, in these sorts of assets. And I think what that does is a few things. One is that the larger the fund, uh, the longer it takes for an investment to happen. While there is liquidity at the sovereign wealth fund level, a transaction time uh, and sell cycle is you know extremely long.
2: Right. Whereas
1: yeah. even medium-sized family offices, medium-sized financial institutions, they can act quickly, but even for them, the ticket sizes are often too large. By just even crowding in at that level, I would imagine that we can tackle some of this deficit right off the bat.
0: So, when you talk about the assets under management in a family office, like about how large are you talking about it?
1: There's been a huge trend uh, in setups of family offices, especially in in the Gulf, in the Middle East, even in South Asia, Southeast Asia, that we've witnessed. Mm-hmm. And we've seen family offices that have, say, AUMs of even as low as fifty million, mm-hmm. uh, anywhere between fifty million to twenty fifty million. There's a surge in family offices that are being set up in this range. But, you know, typical infrastructure projects that have some sort of offtake, a sovereign offtake or a power purchase agreement attached to it are typically outpricing even these family offices from a minimum ticket size perspective.
0: So what type of assets are best suited to this kind of tokenization approach? Are you talking about bridges? Are you talking energy storage, like pipelines, are you about highways?
1: I mean, from a sector perspective, I think obviously a lot of family offices are looking for ESG investments. Uh-huh. Uh, and where ESG is well-placed is in kind of resilient infrastructure assets that are, you know, core to a, a municipality or or to a state or a region.
2: Mm-hmm. So
1: what we're looking for primarily is, you know, sustainable infrastructure assets that meet, you know, certain ESG requirements that these up-and-coming family offices have.
2: Mm-hmm. And then
1: secondary is looking at, you know, mitigating their risks. Obviously, tokenization is new. Uh, you know, there are some benefits that, of course, I'm sure we'll talk about later on this podcast. But primarily, assets that you know we can give confidence uh, in this new asset class of digital tokenization, where mm-hmm. there is a very safe offtake agreement already in place. We're particularly looking at equity and brownfield assets, mm-hmm. uh, where there's an operational history okay. uh, that is already there. So here, we're looking for people that are farming for yield, if you will, so resilient, long tenor yield family offices that are looking to construct their portfolio over an extended period of time. Uh, where an infrastructure asset would be well-placed in that portfolio.
0: So you mentioned um, looking at brownfield assets. So this means that you're interested primarily in retrofitting or, or refurbishing according to a, a long uh, UN sustainable development goals. Is that right?
1: That's correct. I mean, that would be an ideal case. But even, let's say, a renewable power plant uh, that has some operational history where the developer wants to exit, because typically a developer would have to you know buy into some level of uh, equity. Uh-huh. And then there's a lock-in period. And the normal behavior is that developer then wants to liquidate his equity position, move on to the next project that they have. Uh, and here is effectively where FACET is extremely well positioned to take that normal behavior, speed up the time where the developer can get their liquidity back. Then that kind of heart of that asset in terms of equity can be fractionalized and uh, crowded in from, from the investor group that we have.
0: So is, is there a proof of concept or a test case that's been particularly compelling for your firm that you could share with the listeners?
1: We are in the process of uh, tokenizing four assets right now across four jurisdictions. But what I can tell you is that what inspired us is that there was a study done by IISD, which is a, I'm sure you've heard of it, a sustainable development think tank out of Europe. And they looked at the fractionalization of certain real estate assets uh, in Europe uh, over the last five years. So they, they took two different baskets of assets that are similar, and they looked at what happened on the tokenized assets versus Mm -hmm. the assets that were sold and liquidated in a traditional way. And what they found is that the net asset value of the tokenized real estate portfolio increased by 40% for the tokenized assets compared to the non-tokenized assets. And what does this come down to? This comes down to liquidity premium. The -hmm. fact that the tokenized assets, you can liquidate it easier, smoother, in a more frictionless environment. Investors were willing to pay a premium up to 40% that was reflected in the NAV Wow. Uh, for the same, essentially the same basket of real estate. And yeah. when we looked at that study that was, I think, conducted in 2016, we felt that another place where this could come into maximum effect is in infrastructure where the investor audience is so small, the pressure on price that a sovereign wealth fund can put on, on an infrastructure asset is extreme because there just isn't a lot of investors that are within this audience. So by crowding in more investors at different sizes, there should be a move to a more symmetrical, let's say, in information environment mm-hmm. where prices should benefit asset owners. From an investor's perspective, getting yield that you were previously unable to get would also be attractive. So we felt that there's a virtuous cycle right. uh, that we can put in place.
0: So you mentioned having four uh, projects underway in different uh, jurisdictions. Can you say anything about the type of projects those are, or where they're located?
1: Yeah, so we're looking at uh, a wind farm uh, in South Asia in Pakistan specifically, where once again the developer uh, cons- you know put that project into operation about a couple of years ago they're looking to win uh, a few more government tenders on other wind farms that are existing in the country. Now they have a couple of ways of doing that, so one is that now the developer they've you can imagine that they've built one wind farm okay. and they want to win another tender uh, for another wind farm, so that can either get financing the traditional way for the second wind farm or they can just uh, liquidate a part of their equity position in the current wind farm. And that's cheaper cost of capital for winning the next tender. So this is a good example of kind of established behavior, where all we're doing is speeding up the process and creating a more frictionless environment, which ultimately leads to more development of sustainable assets that we need.
0: So what does fractional ownership, if anything, mean for the way that these assets are maintained or managed? Are there any implications of it strictly providing greater liquidity for the exits?
1: Yeah, it's a good question. So, I mean, you know, there's a long way to go and there's no way to get around that. I mean, there's a lot of regulations, behaviors that need to be modified. It's no different than at the beginning of the internet. The example I like to give is that I remember in the late 90s, uh, early 2000s, when people were setting up their email addresses. I remember my dad telling me, you know, don't put your name on the email address. You know, you don't know who's going to come after you. Yeah. Or even a couple of years after that, it's like, you know, don't type your credit card information yeah. on any website, never buy with your credit card on the internet, right? So, I mean, there are some of these things that we have to, you know, get over. So, for example, bringing it back to blockchain and infrastructure and ownership of tokens:
2: mm-hmm.
1: are they legally enforceable? Are they tamper-proof? Can someone come and hack your wallet and take your ownership tokens? Now, I mean, that's not a good question. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So clearly, these sorts of things can happen in any environment, right? I mean, there are hacks of large, you know, stores like Target and credit card information that happen. Uh, in the states uh, a couple of years back. Yeah. So, but you know, by and large, uh, is the advent of blockchain? You know, is it more immutable uh, than before in terms of tamper-proof? Absolutely. Is it more safe in terms of uh, changing ownership in a frictionless way, in a way that uh, can be transparently seen uh, from a number of different vantage points? Absolutely, no doubt about that. From a legal enforceability perspective. Many regulators are coming on and saying that, yes, we will recognize change of ownership. We will recognize the Ethereum blockchain as a custodian. The FCA in the UK, uh, where I'm at right now, they have made a bold move saying that, you know, when we see a transfer of ownership on the Ethereum blockchain, we will consider that, you know, legally enforceable. So, you know, these sorts of movements are new, uh, but we expect this to rise only because the speed and the ability to do a number of amazing things in a tokenized environment, which I hope we can discuss, it really enables a series and set of incentives that cannot happen in the traditional financial context. And I think it's more than fractionalization. And I think many people are not seeing the total picture when it comes to what happens when you tokenize an asset or tokenize anything. Uh, It changes the game. And I think that's where, as people start recognizing that and understanding how behaviors, incentives, can be aligned in a tokenized environment versus a conventional system. We'll see a greater move towards uh, this sort of process.
0: So, what does happen, in, when an asset like a piece of a, like a, an infrastructure asset is tokenized, what happens to people's behavior and the incentive?
1: So, yeah, let, let me let's take a step back and say that you know what happens in an environment where you're dealing with tokenized assets. Uh, so, it's not just the asset that's tokenized. See, mm-hmm. when you tokenize an asset, you're digitally animating that asset into a system a system that is uh, controlled. So the example I like to give, because this is very esoteric at this point, but you know I, I have a daughter who's eight years old and okay. I tell her that you, know, you need to study hard as okay. we do with our, with our children. Okay. And then if you study hard, it'll eventually lead you to having a good life in a number of okay. ways, right? <laughs> so that is, that is what I call a linear incentive. Uh, you know, Fatima, study hard, you'll okay. do well in school. Ultimately, the end goal is that you'll have a, you'll have a good life. Now, coming back to the infrastructure context for a second, this is typically what happens, right? That a developer, they want to liquidate their position Mm -hmm. and they go to an investment bank saying, here's my asset. I need liquidity for it. Here's your fee, uh, investment bank, please uh, liquidate my asset. It's a linear incentive.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: Here, the linear incentive is cash. But going back to the example of Fatima studying to having a better life, Mm -hmm. in a tokenized environment, what would happen in this example? I would be like, you know, Fatima, please study hard. You'll have a good life. And if you study hard, I will give you a slice of chocolate cake. Mm-hmm. So that chocolate cake is a non-linear incentive. And what does that mean? That that means that a chocolate cake, her eating a chocolate cake, is not going to lead to a better life per se, mm-hmm. right? But her eating that chocolate cake is a reinforcing incentive mm-hmm. for her to study. And sure. if you studies, you go back on that linear path. Now, we can even take this one degree further, where I can say that Fatima, if you study, you will have a good life, and I will give you chocolate cake, and I will give you so many chocolate cake slices that you can start selling those chocolate cakes to your friends and neighbors as well. So mm-hmm. now here, if you take a look at this, and I'm, I'm going to bring this back in a second, the, <laughs> the linear incentive is that she studies to having a better life.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: The short-term incentive is that she gets a slice of chocolate cake. Mm-hmm. And then the completely non incentive is that she'll have excess chocolate cakes that she can also sell to the market, which mm-hmm. actually reinforces her having a better life. Right mm-hmm. Now, this is what I call kind of a tokenized environment because each aspect, each incentive is mm-hmm. connected to one another, okay. but in a different, in, what I call incentive species. So okay. the chocolate cake is absolutely an incentive. Right. The excess chocolate cakes are an incentive, Mm
2: -hmm. but they're
1: two different species and studying for a better life. That's an incentive. Now, each one has a value, but those values, you know, are apples and oranges, but Mm -hmm. they're still valuable. Now, coming back to the infrastructure space. So now when we tokenize an infrastructure asset in FACET, Mm
2: -hmm. right,
1: you have the asset tokens themselves. Mm -hmm. But there is also what we call the FACET governance token. So, for example, when when an asset owner wants to tokenize their asset, they have to pay a fee. Now, that fee comes to us in regular currency, right? You can say US dollars. But instead of that disappearing like it would with an investment bank when you pay them the fee, in lieu of the fee that they give us, we give them the facet governance token. Okay. So now when they want to generate liquidity from their asset tokens, they have to what we call attach or stake (laughs) their facet governance tokens to a certain ratio with their asset tokens. Now, when an investor wants to invest in these asset tokens, they also have to buy the facet governance token to a certain ratio to be able to access the yield and the underlying asset tokens. So now these facet governance tokens, we release a certain amount, a predetermined amount of them every single year. Mm -hmm. So you can imagine that when the asset owner buys the governance token, the investors are buying the governance tokens. What is happening to the governant, facet governance token market? The value of each facet governance token is also increasing because the more people buy this token, the mm-hmm. more demand that increases, the value of this individual token is also increasing. So now what happens? This is a nonlinear incentive. So now if you're an asset owner, you're getting liquidity for your asset as okay. you normally would. Okay. But right. because you're staking slash attaching this facet governance token to it, the value of that token whenever you want to sell that token to the next asset owner is also increasing because it's effectively, it's also kind of like real estate. So for example, let's just bring a mathematical example to this. Let's say you're selling a $100 asset, Mm -hmm. right? As an asset owner, your your asset's Mm $1,000 and you want to liquidate 10%, $100. -hmm. You would have to give us a fee of, let's say, 5%, Mm -hmm. you know, $5, right? Now, instead of just giving us the $5 and just moving on and getting your liquidity of $100, you were giving you $5 of facet governance tokens with mm-hmm. it. So now when you want to sell it, you're basically selling your $100 mm-hmm. and you have to attach this $5 with it. Now, as more and more asset owners start buying facet governance tokens, the mm-hmm. price of this uh, governance token goes from $1 per token to effectively, it could be as much as $4 per token.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So now the facet governance token, when the asset owner wants to liquidate or sell that governance token to the next asset owner, Mm-hmm. he might have you know they might have bought it at a dollar but they're selling it at $4 okay so there's sort of a so,
0: secondary market is it does it sounds like you're you're saying there's make a, a secondary market in the trading of governance tokens that right? that's
1: exactly okay. what it is yeah. yep and and the more and more asset owners and investors that leverage the facet token as environment
2: mm-hmm. the
1: price of the facet governance token increases by that same ratio Because Mm -hmm. that is our tax, that is the tariff to play. And that is the non-linear incentive that really skews this entire picture compared to the traditional world. Because not only is the investor now thinking about, okay, I'm getting my 7% yield from this renewable power plant uh, Mm -hmm. in Germany, but I'm also getting somewhere like around a 15 to 20% return on my facet governance token that Mm -hmm. I had to pay to invest, right? And now they're thinking, okay, I'm getting 7% fixed income, I'm getting some sort of 15 to 17% value on my facet governance token. This is a good deal, right? And from the asset owner's perspective, they're like, I'm getting liquidity, (laughs) but to get liquidity, I'm also buying into this token. Now that's better than just going to an investment bank and just paying them the fee that I'll never get a return from. Right. Mm -hmm. That's the idea here.
0: When you talk about the issuance or the attachment of governance tokens to a specific asset, are those indexed to a certain sustainability target or some sort of threshold that has been met for sustainable? That's
1: a great question, and this is where you can can see where kind of the magic starts happening. So, why do we call it the facet governance token? Mm -hmm. Because right now it acts more like a fee, Mm -hmm. but eventually the plan is that the more a person or an investor, institution, or retail owns a governance token, Mm -hmm. the more voting power they have on certain decisions that the entire protocol makes. So for example, maybe uh, our facet ecosystem and community, they want to see that we want more retrofitting of conventional power plants in Europe.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: Uh, We want to see them become more sustainable. And as a facet governance token holder, I am going to vote that we want to see these SDGs are met. Therefore, we want to see these sorts of projects Mm -hmm. being tokenized. We will incentivize asset owners with less fees by just voting into our digital token, right? Because each token has voting abilities built in. Mm -hmm. So we can continuously change the schematics and the incentive structure depending on where the community as large, not not as facet as the founder, but where the community wants to put their interests and put their uh, priorities in place.
0: And do you foresee a market you know in the future uh, possibly or or maybe even, you know in the very near future, where countries or, or companies can use uh, facet governance tokens to offset for example, emissions in other parts of? The absolutely economy?
1: it really just comes down to you know now depending on your interest and where your expertise lies so there's a couple of interesting things that happen with the facet governance token. so let's say you're a passive investor yeah and right. you're just an investor thinking that you know I'm just going to hold on to facet governance token because they themselves have great value, and they allow me to basically espouse my priorities from an ESG perspective. Right. So you can do that. But let's say you're an active investor, and you're really coming onto the passive platform and saying that, you know what, I really want to swing ESG towards renewable power plants. So I'm going to come and buy 20% of 2020's FGT, Facet Governance Token Allocation, so that I can really put my vote into play. right? Mm-hmm. And, and let's say that you know you're a passive investor, you can even ascribe your vote to someone else that matches your community. So you don't have time to vote on a regular basis on proposals. So the Ethereum protocol allows you to take your vote and put it in the hands of someone else. So there's many cool things that can happen that we're planning to roll out uh, over time.
0: So why is Ethereum in particular well-suited as the, the sort of crypto platform for facet?
1: It's a great question. So obviously, you know, many people think of Ethereum. They think about a cryptocurrency that they read on the news that the price is increasing or it's decreasing. But the reality is that Ethereum uh, is a very robust protocol. It's a system, and it's a it's a system of smart contracts. So, for example, the protocol that we use uh, in Ethereum is called it's a standard called ERC fourteen hundred.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So here we're able to programmatically encapsulate many different things. So, for example, the ownership certificates of the equity uh, in these infrastructure assets, we can actually place them within the tokens themselves. So for example, if you were to go to another tool that that we're coming out, Facet Scan, you'll be able to exactly see which assets are owned by which token holders. All of that is digitally encapsulated in the token, Mm -hmm. right? And Ethereum allows you to do that. Another thing is that regulators often want to say that, okay, we want you to do robust KYC, robust AML. If we feel, you know, that there was an illicit transaction, we want to be able to reverse that transaction.
2: Mm-hmm. So
1: ERC 1400, a regulator can come in, number one, observe all of the movements of ownership and funds, but they mm-hmm. can also reverse certain transactions that may later be deemed as illicit, hypothetically, wow. right? And that's that's a great feature to have. And that's that's a feature that brings us in some cases closer to the conventional environment mm-hmm. while still maintaining all the Smart contract magic that we just discussed.
0: Excellent. So let's talk a little about Facet's company structure. So you do have as part of your intellectual property, you have the hard asset token, yep. and do I understand correctly that you also have the exchange feature?
1: Is it, That's correct. How is
0: the company structured? in FACET?
1: so the company is one. Basically, we have what we call the Facet Enterprise Platform. That is, you can consider that the tokenization machine. Okay. So that takes your conventional. Every infrastructure asset, it boils down to a contract, right? A series of contracts. Okay. So what the Facet Enterprise Platform does is that we digitally animate those contracts, fractionalize them, create tokens. And these are the, the means in which we can, you know, conduct transactions. Now, what the Facet Exchange does is just another product offering. That is the gateway towards liquidity. Mm-hmm. So you know, how do investors buy into these tokens? They come through the exchange gateway. So they can either buy directly with their fiat currencies, <laughs> or the exchange also allows you to get into you know, a USDT, which is a digital US dollar, or you can buy it through Ethereum. Because there's, another, there's many other cool things that happen. So for example, if I'm an asset owner, and you, know, you could take your liquidity, for example, in the typical fiat currency, or you can take it in digital gold in Bitcoin, for example. So some asset owners are like, okay, I have 100% equity in this renewable power plant. What would happen if I just convert 10% of that into Bitcoin? Mm-hmm. Right. And because now I'm getting the upside. I'm still holding on to some of the yield. I still own ninety percent of my asset, but I'm kind of rebalancing my infrastructure portfolio. Right. So this can also happen, right? And and I think that that also brings another interesting uh characteristic to our platform. So even for example, on our exchange, we're really focused not towards your alternative cryptocurrencies, we're focused towards commodity currencies. So for example, you know, we have gold tokens that someone can purchase as well. So right. those gold tokens could also be used to uh, refinance the asset owners. So there's many permutations that you will just never see in the conventional market that an asset owner and investors have to play with. And this goes back to this whole concept of nonlinear incentives,
2: mm-hmm. that
1: you know, instead of just a straight US dollar transaction, mm-hmm. there's so many permutations and so many ways that you can incentivize behavior, reallocate portfolio, think about quasi returns that were just impossible to do in the past. And then when you think about infrastructure, there are also many constraints. So for example, if you're trying to look at a, let's say a national grid project, a, let's say a renewable national grid project in Zimbabwe. And I like to give this example a lot because Zimbabwe doesn't necessarily have a local currency, but we know that a national grid is essential core infrastructure to any country. It's a very resilient asset and it's a much needed asset. Electrification of a country like Zimbabwe is extremely critical from an SDG perspective. It's healthy from a Uh, return perspective. Now, they don't have a local currency. Mm -hmm. So here is a great example where by combining some of the return potential of the facet governance token, by Mm -hmm. combining some of the the transfer of fund potential with Bitcoin or Ethereum, right? Or with even the digital US dollar, USDT, Mm -hmm. we're making Zimbabwe into a more Mm investor-friendly market that was just simply impossible to do before. Because even to transfer funds from an institutional investor, let's say from Manhattan into Zimbabwe, I mean, that's extremely difficult, you know, and to repatriate those funds, good luck, right? It could take time. But to be able to do that in parallel to the financial system, blockchain, where the intermediary is not a bank, it's a decentralized protocol, where as long as you're meeting certain KYC requirements, the transfer of funds takes no time. Mm -hmm. And the ability to bring in nonlinear incentives can make Zimbabwe into a more investor-friendly place.
0: So we had talked earlier about uh, your early your early investors. Uh, I know you have support from family offices in the UAE, in Saudi Arabia, in Bahrain, in Kuwait, and in Singapore. Um, can you say anything about any interest you may have had from sovereign wealth funds or from other institutional investors?
1: No, that's a great question. I mean, so why did we do what we did in terms of raising the initial capital for family offices? Actually, all our family offices are headed by former or current banking executives. So either our family offices were, you know, based on the success of our main investors, you know, starting banks or or being members of board of directors of leading banks in these in these markets. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we were particularly keen on getting their support because they have the knowledge of the traditional space. They know the limitations, they know the hindrances. So Mm -hmm. very keen. Instead of going to traditional VCs, we wanted banking, you know, executives, senior fin- financiers who really understand understood the pain points of cross-border investments. So if you think about, you know, our family office in Saudi or Singapore,
2: mm-hmm. you
1: know, these are markets where there are a lot of investments that these family offices are making in places like Zimbabwe, right? Places like Ghana, places like Pakistan. So they really understand where the disintermediation or the disjoining factors that come in with the conventional financial system. So I can tell you that you know the founders of these family offices, they know the pains of, let's say, investing in a project in India or investing in a project in Senegal. And from here, it's easy for us to go to them and say, okay, look, this, this is how we're solving this issue, or this is what we're thinking about you know, making something more investor friendly. Mm -hmm. So instead of going to VCs where you're typically getting the startup advice, we really wanted to kind of understand the deep pain points from our investors. And Mm -hmm. they also understood the value proposition for us. So that was kind of where it is. And now when it comes to sovereign wealth funds, of course, I mean, I think, you know, they also see a lot of value because sovereign wealth funds at times like this want to liquidate their long tenor assets as well, Mm -hmm. right? Because they see a lot of great opportunities in the public equity market per Mm -hmm. se. Uh, So I think what everyone, you know, we've spoken to several. Uh, I think they're just keen on how our first deals work and how this tokenized environment, because no one is able to really calculate our model returns in a non-linear incentive world, right? Mm -hmm. Everyone's so used to a linear deal where it's just cash on cash. But here you have the upside of the facet governance token. You have, you know, Bitcoin's upside or downside. It's a more complex environment.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: But I think as people get more educated, uh, things will, you know, we'll see more interesting deals with sovereign wealth funds and the like.
0: You had mentioned that, I mean, I think the test case for deployment in an emerging market like Zimbabwe and, and you know, the electrification example that you offered is is very clear. That's something that could be deployed in a, in a very short period of time. How far off is a test case in a developed market, do you think?
1: So there's pros and cons. So in, in the developed market, I think we are looking at one now, see the yields are not attractive. Right. So, you know, while it's risk free and because the financial uh, markets in these developed markets are very mature, Mm -hmm. oftentimes the benefits of tokenization are not realized Mm -hmm. uh, compared to the traditional investment that you can make. So our focus has always been in emerging markets where, you know, we're bringing an upside that was previously untenable. Whereas, you know, you can you have, you know, gold backed ETFs, you have infrastructure funds, that are trading uh, on public equity markets. So the investor in America or Europe already has great options, right? That doesn't, you know, behaviorally incentivize them to try something brand new, even though the upside might be greater. So I think we're a little bit far off. I think we have, you know, our, our bread and butter is really making far away deals more investor friendly, more accessible.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: and I think that's where our focus will lie for, for the at least for the short term.
0: If you could make a, a broad statement about governments <laughs> generally, how do governments view this notion of, of fractional ownership of, of critical infrastructure? Do you anticipate, have you encountered resistance? Do you anticipate a lot of pushback?
1: So to be honest, it's completely the opposite. So we've been in discussions with uh, a number of governments, even in my previous capacity as, as an advisor to Uh, The UA Prime Minister's office, we did a lot of uh, discussions with other governments as well, just on technology, blockchain, artificial intelligence. Mm -hmm. And what I can tell you is that regulators today, whether you're in a developed market or a developing market, do not want to miss the next big thing under any (laughs) (laughs) circumstance. Right. So whether it's cashless payments, whether it's different types of KYC when it comes to face ID and things like this, no regulator wants to be kind of caught saying, you know, we're behind by 10 years. Right. right. And with the young population uh, that are coming up in developing markets uh, with the demand for even COVID-19 has increased digital penetration to epic proportions.
2: Right.
1: So regulators are under pressure.
2: Uh-huh. Uh,
1: they're under pressure by their ministers or their director generals to say that, you know what, we need to keep an open mind. Uh-huh. Uh, we cannot fall behind other countries. So I think that's kind of one sentiment, which is good in our favor. The right. second sentiment is what we are kind of Calling digital foreign direct investment. Okay. Right. Mm -hmm. So the ability to create liquidity from your national assets, it's a big thing, right? Mm -hmm. Because when you think about, um, you know, kind of in the 80s and 90s, we talked about it as privatization, Mm -hmm. right? You know, privatization is a way that governments can get leaner, more agile, more quick, you know, Mm -hmm. create liquidity and move on. But here we're in a different environment, right? So there are many different types of ways that you can finance your assets. Right now, even if you're a government and you're trying to finance, say, a highway, you're going to tap onto a bank, right? Why not fractionalize and tokenize that and let everyone get a chance for a piece of the pie, right? Mm-hmm. Why not let your, you know, in a country like Pakistan or Bangladesh, you have an enormous expat community, you have an enormous diaspora that you can tap into that are looking for ways to kind of invest back in their home country, right? right? Why not give them an opportunity to invest in, a, in an essential infrastructure asset in their home country,
2: right. you know,
1: and, and create a cheaper cost of capital than you would get from an international bank per se. Right. Right? So there are many interesting permutations. and I think everyone generally has kept a very open mind about all of this, to yeah. be honest, from a government perspective.
0: Do you, do you anticipate any kind of protectionism about digitization, digitalization of, of physical infrastructure?
1: No, that's happening. So, I mean, I can tell you that, you know, there are in, in definitely in developing markets, you have this issue of capital controls. Sure. That, hey, <laughs> you know, uh, bring Bitcoin and Ethereum into our markets. Is this going to be a way that, you know, our businessmen are going to take out money from our country. Mm -hmm. So the good thing about, you know, smart contracts, cryptocurrencies, even Mm -hmm. the Ethereum protocol is that there are many ways that, you know, at least in the short term, you can give comfort to the regulator saying that, nope, we're only going to allow investments to come into your country. Mm -hmm. Uh, Any local investments will make sure that they're not expatriated from the boundaries, the borders of your country. Mm -hmm. So there are these sorts of concerns. Uh, and there will be for the foreseeable future. But the key thing is that when 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 governments hear the potential of bringing an alternative source of capital and investment that they never even thought about, right. it's very effective, right? And starting from that ground, I think the conversation becomes a bit easier. But of course, all, many questions about.
0: Excellent. One final question, just to kind of wrap things up. Where do you see Fasat in five years? I mean, it's we've obviously gone through such a, an enormous amount of, of change and acceleration in certain trends that were already underway as a result of COVID. We don't know what the long-term ramifications of those might be, but it seems that FACET is really at the center of some really interesting, as we said, intersections of, of different market trends. Where would you like to see the company in five? I
1: can give you an example um, of what we would like to see in five years' time. Mm-hmm. So let's, let's go back to, we don't have to call it the government of Zimbabwe. Let's say there's a developing market government mm-hmm. that denominates a greenfield, let's say, renewable power plant
2: mm-hmm. in
1: what we call the infrastructure back dollar. So one of our projects at Facet is to create a mode of currency for Mm -hmm. project finance, for infrastructure finance. So this this government says, you know, we will tender a purely digital investment for Mm -hmm. a renewable power plant in a natively digital currency. Mm -hmm. uh, And the yield will also be paid to these investors in Mm -hmm. the same digital currency. Wow. Uh, And that to us, in a nutshell, and you can, you know, and anyone listening can kind of, take their imagination to any place from here, that you have a government denominating a new project in a digital currency. Yield is also going to be paid in a digital currency. Incoming investments are going to be made digitally. Uh What kind of, I mean, what an amazing frictionless environment can Mm -hmm. you unearth a real asset that exists in the real world, but Mm -hmm. through digital investments that are not linked to any sort of currency risk, any sort of banking risk in the sense of moving money from one cross-border risk, if you will. Mm-hmm. For us, and in combining that, as I talked about, with our nonlinear incentives of facet governance token and being able to buy through Bitcoin, et cetera,
2: mm-hmm.
1: amazing possibilities. And for us, yeah. if we can get to that point in five years, yeah. I, I think you know we've we've made enough of a an impact yeah. that we can be proud of.
0: Five years, that's exciting. Yep. Mohammed Rafi Hussein, thank you so much for speaking with Investable Universe today.
1: So thank you very much, Rebecca. It very good. That's all we got for
0: Investable Universe this week. If you liked what you heard, share the link, check out the site at investableuniverse.com or pitch us for future episodes. The address is editor at investableuniverse.com. My name is Rebecca Darst, and you'll hear more from me next time.